You're listening to These Are The Days. Welcome back to These Are The Days. A huge thank you to Ian Pilbeam for sharing his family's stories of travelling around the world for a year with his wife, with the kids. And listen, the book's well worth a read as well. You can search for Are We There Yet? on Amazon. Don't forget, give us a follow on social media. We're at The Days Podcast. And you can check out the website, thedayspodcast.com. These are the days. My next guest grew up in a wee village in Angus, travelled around New Zealand, worked on a farm in Georgia, and earned little over 800 quid working full-time in a call centre in Dundee. That's just a snippet of some of the stories you're about to hear on episode 22 of These Are The Days. Follow the podcast on social media. We're at The Days Podcast on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So my guest this week is Scots writer and presenter Ali Heather. Ali, uh, it's been a while since I've done in person. Billy Morris, who's a D, was my first one. You being a United fan, I think I've got the divide correct, but... It's nice to see people in person for this again. Oh, 100%. I've made the effort. Folk at home obviously kind of see it, but I've got the fairy lights. I've got the uh, got the candles lit, a nice mango infusion uh, filling the air. It's it's a, it's nice to have you here in the house. Talk to us about these slippers. Come on. Oh, man. Aye, so I've got this muckle pair of slippers on that are basically like a sort of twa sheep turned inside out. I get sent them from my granny. I've got a granny. She's a Fifer originally, but bides in New Zealand. Been living there a long time. And she sends us new slippers every sort of two or three Christmases. And they're like just big, furry, leathery things that are... Ken, you could just about work on a farm in them. Incredible stuff. Definitely taking a picture of them before we go. Um, Listen, it's good to speak to you. We've obviously done uh, a few bits and bobs uh, with podcasts and some other stuff that we kind of talk about yet into the the turn of the year. All revolving around really the Scots language and Dundee United. Um, And obviously that's, we'll speak a wee bit more about that as we will go. But uh, I I need to apologise for you because I did say on the Dode Fox podcast that you... (laughs) You weren't a fan new biggin. I said you were fan Newborough, Aye. which is miles apart, mm-hmm. of course. Uh, but born in uh, New Bigging, what was it like growing up in the sticks? So, born in Nine Wells. Um, well, of course. Spent yeah, the yeah. first week or two along our growth, like postnatal. And then, our first year was actually by my grandparents in Carnoustie, uh, waiting on the council house list for Angus. And so, I like learned to walk in car in Carsnoot. And um, I have very fond memories of strong attachment to Carnoustie. But I got on the council house list and got put in what is very, very technically a new big and scheme, right? It's like 10 council houses built for the quarry that's on the hill there. And it was lovely, man. Like, because you're going to school we farmers, you're going to school we quarry workers, bairns. You go, like, my first girlfriend was like a, a part of a millionaire family of horse breeders. So it was properly like multi multi-ethnic, multi-class. I would say it was totally bananas. So it was like a crazy, crazy place to grow up. Like, we were never, never out of bother with the police for like, like sort of like breaking and entering and like running amok at the night times. And um, we had a vendetta, much like the uh, Montagues and Capulets of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. We had warring factions. So our family, there was three of us, me and my brother and my sister, and we had New Zealand connections. And there's this other family, I'll no name them for legal reasons, but they had 10 bairns and their dad was Australian and they were our enemies. So like properly would like kick shit out of each other in the streets. Uh, they'd chase us, we'd chase them. They'd set their dogs on us if we're playing football in the park. Um, 
My dad booted their dog, they egged their hoose. My dad got the eggs out the fridge, took us around and egged their front door. It was properly like bloodthirst, New Biggin style. I took some pals there for a Hogmanay party and the youngest members of their family came out and just chucked stains at us and like properly like scared the shit out of my nice middle class university pals. So no, New Biggin, New Biggin has been consistently mental. It's the bloods v the crips, isn't it? Um, <laughs> like it it's all changed now, though. There's Afi Baguses in New Biggin. Like, when you go up there to Maniki, usually with a dog, but it's a change there. Gary Boland bides in New Biggin now. There you go. There's a lot of folk. Yeah, no, they, um, when I was when I was staying there, they built a bunch of new houses, like, sort of in that sort of uh, Dorset English mm. white style. And um, and that did change things, because they didn't send the bands to the local school. Um, they didn't use the local shops or anything. They they turned it for like a sort of um, a stagnant farming backwater into a commuting suburb. And truth be told, nobody seems the less happy for it. But yeah. it did change the the fabric of the community. But fair play. Yeah. Uh, what was your school in that then? At New Biggin. So uh. New Biggin Primary. Um, like it was it was so old fashioned. Nobody believes me when I chat about New Biggin Primary. Like Mr. Henderson, that was uh, the heat teacher there, he had a big compost heap and a tatty patch and we'd go out and put the compost on the tatties. He brought us in um, pheasants that he'd shot that morning and we'd pluck them. One time we were, uh, I used to play on the netball team and those lasses played on the football team because there wasn't enough of each gender to, to keep the gender divide in their sports. And one time um, we were playing netball, I think against the Dundee or Money Feast team or something like that. And we were in the classroom. We heard them arrive. Then we heard screaming, went outside. And it turns out they'd freaked out because uh, Mr. Henderson had left a plucked pheasant to bleed out hanging for the netball hoop. <laughs> He's like, oh, sorry, I won't cut it down. So, um, and uh, he'd do things like uh, when it got cold, he'd come in early at school and um, hose doing the car park so we could make long ice slides. Um, when that freeze what so, a man what a man obviously got drummed out the education establishment <laughs> no longer after all well, uh, but um, aye, how, he was how many pupils are you talking 32 total total so I no I was in we'd hey, I think it was primary 1 to 3 3 to 5 and then um, 6 and 7 wow. no it's less it's like 20 bairns are there now. jeez um, so I it was it was good in a sense that you were part of a real community like Abdi, Abdi got along with Abdi. You had to. Um, we got really good at things like the school was really big on reading. Um, so we were all really, really. We all love reading. We all love writing. We all love storytelling. Um, history was big there. We'd get local audience for the village. Would come in and tell us about local history. We'd get like they'd bring in maps and tell us about like the, the how things used to be. They tell us about the Roman occupations and. We were really connected to that kind of stuff, but none of us have a handwriting that's legible. Like we just didn't they learn handwriting, and we're no good at math. Like Navy Fanny Biggin was good at math because like the two teachers weren't very good at it. Um, oh, it was a funny. Uh, where'd you go after that? Who were your uh, teenage years? What school were you doing there? Well, we had a bit of a tumult because uh, my dad stayed in London all the time that I was in New Biggin, mm. but then he came up the road, and me and my mum basically got the heave-ho and ended up uh, staying on pals' couches and stuff for years. Mm. So um, we ended up in places like East Haven for a wee while Nice a fishing cottage. Yeah, yeah, totally. A fishing cottage had been renovated, right? And we got it cheap because they'd renovated it and forgot to install any plugs. Oh, I mean, so we on. had to get like an extension cable coming from the next door and plug Ahan into it. It was the weirdest gig, weirdest setup. So we were there at East Haven for a bit. We were staying with a pal in Newport for a while. I was catching three buses to get to <laughs> Carnoustie High School. Jeez. 
I and um, so I we bounced about a lot and mm. ended up staying in Coristi and I went to Coristi High School mm. and um, I so that was kind of the next step after New Biggin and then eventually my mum got the hoose back when we we're talking about sort of I'm sixteen seventeen mm. so just getting ready so kind of moved back into New Biggin for the last couple of years of high school yeah and uh, again it's not uh, I've had this conversation before uh, I think on this podcast maybe in the first season I kind of mind but. About when you're at school, you've got to make the choices. You've got to make the like. I I went to uh, to Rockwell High School, and that shut that closed. It was closing at the end of my third year, but I left at the end of second year. Mm. I remember going to third year at a new school, not at the level I should have been at, which made it real catch up to get to you know going down to pick what you're going to study at your standard grades. But I'm thinking, I've never actually knew I could do. Uh, Spanish or German, we only got French. So, <laughs> you know, you were, you were up to, you were merged for there. And then you got, like, it was like, well, there's Latin. You can go Latin or, you know, making the choices. For me, it was really tough because I wasn't at the level, didn't really pay much attention and made piss poor choices. But for yourself, you remember sort of making choices or what you were what, thinking, what you were going to do or what you wanted to do back then? Yeah, really, I really pissed away my high school years. Like, so I was heavy into the heavy metal scene, um, and I used to promote gigs. So I used to book bands and book gigs. And every Friday, Saturday night, I'd be away at the Viewfield Hotel in Arbroath. Mate, what a venue! What a venue, man! Yeah. Absolutely bananas. Uh, Westy, like Westport Bar and Dundee Balcony Bar, away up to Aberdeen and Perth, like Twa Tams doing there mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. So I was heavy in the heavy metal scene and really found my identity through that. It's amazing. Unfortunately, I never made school my identity. So when I finally did get around, we can chat about uni later, but I finally got around to going uh, to uni. I had to get my high school results. I bombed it, man. I mm. got like one higher and my attendance in fifth year was 48%. Where was I? I was uh, turning Sprite cans into small bongs in the park, <laughs> which is no way to spend your youth, children. No. What, what, were, you, what, were, you ho- what were you looking to go and study at the time? Oh, nothing. Like, uni was at the question. No. Yeah, uni was at the, Like, I didn't do very well at high school. I was just, man, I was just chaotic. Like, I was, like, all the moving about with my mum, mm. like, getting... I was quite mixed up at the time, and I'd found my support and my community and my identity through music. Yeah. And so I was kind of focusing on just getting through it and just trying to try to manage to the end. Um, I did I did enjoy high school, but I was, man alive, I was disruptive. I, I just, I, I couldn't be arsed eh? like there. I was, I, th- that's a true story. I, I've probably mentioned this as well. Like I stayed on uh, and I'm trying to work out when this was. So in fourth year, I mind it come around to, to study and like I, I got really my standard grades are shy eh? like, uh, like <laughs> what we're talking well they're that bad I got a two in PE I mean that's how bad it is I mean, I mean I'm sitting on your couch like fucking Usain Bolt here obviously I can <laughs> so I got a two in PE and uh, but like I got really like my maths my maths should have been I was really good at maths like and I still to this day claim I'm good I couldn't do the ex- the, te- the exams or the I just flunked them so I come out with like Four, uh, three in maths but four in English didn't like the teacher teacher didn't like me it was mm. always going to be tough uh, stuff like that and then when it come to like staying on I was really clutching at straws to study something because I forgot, what did I hit a show for it I had, uh, I had a three in 
uh, office information studies. Not even computing. Office, <laughs> informa- office information like, studies. I, I, I can't work Microsoft Word and Excel. <laughs> That's what I can do. So I studied secretarial studies as a hire, <laughs> only so I could stay on for fifth year because I'm I went to turn seventeen. I've no idea what I want to do. I've just been on a lads' holiday in Magaluf. I'm definitely not going to any place. And then um, kind of scattered through fifth year. Never really done much, but really found what I have to say was my passion: drama. Like I done drama right? and module uh, module and drama. Man, I fucking love that shit. Like, uh, oh man, I love that. I love that. But we're talking like theatre. Yeah, well, yeah, we we, we put on a. a, a so Fraser might listen to this, and he might correct me because it might have been six year when we done this show. It was six year, but I done it in fifth year as well. But we do shows on at the school, and in sixth year, now I only stayed on at six year because I was going out with somebody, uh-huh. and they were a year below me. Mr. So Mr. I thought, boy. I'm not fucking leaving. So. <laughs> Staying. <laughs> I ain't leaving. And uh, again, I, I was I was not going to none. Like, I meant going. I was meant to go to someone on a Monday morning. First two periods. Never went. So never ever got registered. So I had two free periods. Like, I wasn't even studying a higher. Like, I was I was a terrible six year. But at 17, I had no idea what else I was going to do. So, um, the uh, this is meant to be about you. Uh, I'm enjoying that. But the drama, yeah, so drama. So the, the teacher was a... Uh, uh, M- M- Mrs. Steele, who I still know to this day, and she is fucking brilliant. She is brilliant. Uh, she was doing a, we are going to do Cinderella, but it was going to be flipped and based on like Dundee and based on things in the school and stuff. And I was like, I'm in. And uh, there's only one role for me. It was an ugly sister, wasn't it? I mean, oh. it had to be. Like, it had to be. So me and my mate, Bobby, both done uh, the ugly sisters. And it, it was three <laughs> nights. It was about December time. And uh, I remember like rehearsals were like weekends and stuff. I was like, this is pretty serious. This is pretty cool. And we sold out and we got the biggest cheer every night. Of course oh, we did. I mean, of course we did. I mean, fucking kicking about in drag, right? Uh, it was. I mean, we had to fall gear on. Uh, but that summer, just that's just come to me. That summer, we had a talentless talent show, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. So these boys rocked up, really good band, right? And two of them went on to play in bands that are, that are really good. And they were class, and we were like, "Well, we can relax, no brilliant. Like we can, it's it's class." So we were, uh, we were five boys, teenagers, 16, 17 year old, dressed in women's clothes, singing "It's Raining Men." <laughs> I had my mother's nurse's uniform on. Now, ah, uh, that's exactly what I was. It was uh, there was balls flying our place. It was class. So uh, yeah, so and I, I just thought. Fucking man, maybe this is, this is for me. Being on the stage is class. So I done drama and then joined. Uh, um, I call it Elaine because we're not at school anymore. She had a theatre group and I joined that theatre group and done loads of stuff there. Like played the BFG, the Caird Hall, and stuff like that. And I have absolutely loved it. And then when it come to the end of sixth year, I was like, I need to go and study something. What did I study? Right, I can study PE because I've got a, I've got high, I've got a, a standard grade, so I could go and do that if I really wanted sports coaching. No. Fucking bave yourself. I'm cutting about with highlights in my hair here. I'm like, nah. So no doing that. I could do retail management. I'm working in a supermarket. It's an easy way out. I could go and do um, theatre arts. So I applied for the theatre arts. No really reading it. But I applied to the theatre arts. And I got the thing back. Um, you need actors. You need to do a monologue. I'm like, fucking no problem. You need to dance. You need to sing. 
Ah, well, we'll just throw that out then. That's oh, not happening. So, uh, can, you, can you hold a tune a wee bit? Nope. I uh, sound like uh, a goose farting in the fog. I will <laughs> put a quote Billy Conley for that because it's absolutely true. And I can obviously dance. If you can, eh? I mean, MD can dance. So, nah, so that kind of killed that. But I joined the theatre group. And that, that was all sort of cool. But I went and done retail management because it was easy. But it wasn't what I wanted to do. No. But, uh, but it was amazing. Like, I, and I hate that. I hated that time. Of choosing, and again, still now at 39, I go, I wish 24, 5 years ago, I tried harder and to do more and went to do something else. And when I was at college, part of the retail management, the accountancy, and I loved it because it was like maths again. I should have, I should have dropped to a retail management and done accountancy then. I should have, I should have done it. And uh, I kind of look back now and I've, I've looked now, even at this age and went... I don't know if I could still study it, but I'm actually like... I'm not having this, Ronnie. You're looking back at your youth saying you wish you'd become an accountant. But <laughs> like, I wish you'd gone to the theatre. <laughs> I wish I was going to see you in panel. I know, I know, I know. But it's Come just... on, Ronnie Costello is the genie. <laughs> well, yeah, you never know. You never know. You're young yet, 39, man. I don't go that far. But, I, I, but I loved like, that side. I loved that stuff. But see what... Because it probably wasn't like studying. Well, it was. It was learning lines, but it wasn't like... It was easier than a lot of other stuff. Like it was easier than physics and chemistry and all that shit. It was easier to you. No, it was easier to you. Like I did physics. Uh, oh. the only, I didn't advance higher in physics. I'd done biology just so that I had to speak about bobies. <laughs> <laughs> um, True story. But no, like nobody in my physics class could have done learning lines and getting up on mm. stage. Like it was easy to you. Honestly, man, I'm going to start this petition right now. I want Ronnie Costello in, in the reps panto season within a year. I wouldn't go that far. Um, but anyway, back to you. Uh, so yeah, so you kind of like me, but when it comes to grades and really trying, you weren't really trying so stuff. So, I so didn't realise, yeah. What happened when you finished sixth year then? Because I mean, I do have a note that you've got an interesting family tree uh-huh. as well. So I don't know when that comes into play of everything that's going on. Like, did you then go to uni or did you just start working? No, no, no. no. Um, I didn't go. There was no question of me going to uni. After high school, class. with my grades, I cannot, and this is genuinely a minter, I applied for and got rejected Fay Arbroath College Dry Stain Dyking course. I wasn't even bright enough to put one stone on top of another. Fucking hell. That's bad going, like. It's bad, like. Um, <laughs> so I started work, I mean, this is, like, a lot of Dundonians listen to this, I started work at Cytel Call Centre. Oh, yes. Ah, man, alive. It, I punched the air with joy when I drive past there now and see it all bombed out. Absolutely. See in hell, Cytel. Um, I hated it. I absolutely hated it. Um, and it was it was the first time I'd ever experienced, like, real small-minded anti-cultural people. Like, it always belonged to communities who are mm. Abdi was worth something. And that was the first time I'd ever experienced being a worthless member of an underclass. Oh. You're treated like a piece of shit yeah. by an organisation that doesn't care about you. And they're quite happy just to shit you at the back door if you're any hassle. And um, I couldn't believe that like humans treated humans like that. And for example, there's one bus for Newbiggin, because me and my mum were back in Newbiggin at this stage. And it, it got, it was meant to get in the Cytel uh, Technology Park at like 8.55. And it didn't. It got in at 9.07 every day and I was meant to start at 9. My supervisor every day threatened us. I was like, mate, there is one bus. It gets in at 907. I'll work till 507. There's nothing I can do. He's like, well, you have to do something else. You'll have to find a way to get earlier. I was like, there is no way. What do you want to do? Buy a Ferrari on the wages you're paying me and roar in here at 835. You pay me and I'll do it. Uh, so I was there for, honestly, man, three months. And 
I'll be honest, like I really contemplated suicide because I thought I hate the way my future looks. I've, I've got, I can't get ed- into education. I can't get meaningful work. I can't get out of my mum's house. I can't get a bus that runs on time. Like, how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? And that is where the family tree came in because I've got a granny in New Zealand. So I was able to get a New Zealand passport. Give you these. Give me these slippers. And honestly, man, see if I didn't have a New Zealand passport, fuck knows what I'd be doing. Because mm. I used my money, uh, face I tell, my second pay for them. So 100 quid? What'd you do with that? 835 quid <laughs> a month. A month for full time. Jeez. And I got myself a one-way ticket in New Zealand. Uh, and it was about three months doing the line uh, uh, like three months in the future just the cheapest ticket I could get and I managed to get a labouring job in London through a friend of a friend and went down to London slept in a, a squat <laughs> and did my labouring job 12 hours a day me and guys like Meertek <laughs> uh, big Polish laddies uh, did this labouring job and that gave me enough money to get to New Zealand mm-hmm. and that was my escape I, I've got no idea what I would have done if it wasn't for that so what are we talking year wise so I would have been 17, 18, and we're talking about, what was that, 2008, 9? Okay. Aye. Okay. And like, a, a pal of mine, Paul, had a similar experience. He's Fegorgi, actually. I didn't get to kill him until later in life. And he also got sent to uh, Canada when he was about 17. And he was sent. He, he's running amok, <laughs> right? And he had a cousin, cousin in Canada, and he got sent to, I can't imagine if it was like Toronto or Vancouver or wherever. But he said he arrived off the plane with a Burberry cap, sat at 40 degrees, shell suit, one hand on his boss. And he was like, all right, Gadji, same that, arriving in Canada. And he said, he arrived and he was like, wow, I thought the whole world was a world of Neds. <laughs> I thought after he was Neds. And, and, and it was three months in Canada, helped him realise, hold on, there's a whole other world. I can be all sorts of different people. And me getting out of Saitel and my pal Paul getting out of Gorgie, it was like, hold on, we're, we can be other people. Like we didn't hate to just be like, like, schemies. Like, my pal said to us in Dundee when I was working at Saitel, mate, if you're born here, you're born fucked. And I believed that. And it was getting out, get, it was getting out of Saitel and getting off to New Zealand that, yeah, saved my life. Like, What did New Zealand do for you then? What did you see? What did you learn? So I would say, for the first year, it was a case of just, I was still chaotic and brought all my, like, sort of view field hotel habits with me to New Zealand. And I just lived in a tent, uh, hitchhiked around, um, uh, would work. They didn't hear uh, a financial crash in New Zealand. So obviously I'd left high school into the 2008 financial crisis, which I think had really limited my opportunities and hadn't had led Dundee to be at his best. Hmm. Um, but yeah. New Zealand hadn't had that financial crisis. So there's loads and loads of labour and work and hospitality work. So I, was, I could bounce around working in scaffolding for a few months. Uh, for a while, I lived in this place called Lower Hut, which is sort of like just a, what would you say? It's sort of like um, maybe somewhere like Musselburgh. It's like a wee community near the capital. Mm. and But it's like quite working class. And I was about the only white person. Um, and I'd get picked up by the labouring van at 5.45 in the morning. 0800 Labour, they were called, Allied Labour. And we'd get driven <laughs> to a warehouse and we'd just sit and wait, me and all these big Maori boys, we'd just sit and wait for like joiners or plumbers to ring up saying they need labour. And then our minibus would go and drop us off at the site. We're just minimum wage, like. Mm. But I'd get picked up 5.45 in the morning, sit in the minibus, chat with these uh, sort of Pacific Island boys, go and work as like a plumber's apprentice or go and work like laying astroturf at a hockey pitch or kind of like, I loved it, man. Yeah. I loved it. World of opportunity. Yeah, oh, without a doubt. How long did you stay there for? So I did a year of that, like just kind of bouncing about. And then, let me get my timing right. So I would have been, what, 19 then. 
I think a oh man. I'm not sure about exactly times. I think I briefly came home for a few months and then went back to New Zealand. I forget exactly why. Maybe somebody died or something. I can't mm. mind. But uh, <laughs> somebody, I got a girlfriend over there Uh-oh. who, no, no, it was, all, it was so positive. Uh-oh. She was an intellectual. She was middle class. Her family were worth literal millions of pounds. And I'd never obviously, Ken and I, shag your way up. <laughs> that was my policy. And, uh, but she was uh, a feminist. She was an opera singer. And she completely changed my worldview. She, I'm a very traditional community. So she challenged a lot of the harmful aspects of that. Uh, she challenged my inability to express myself emotionally, which is very much part of the East Coast male upbringing. She challenged my attitudes around women. She challenged a lot of my attitudes around sex. She challenged a lot of my attitudes around my own self-esteem. Amazing. Opened my eyes to culture because I was very close-minded. I was like, everyone's a working class culture or it's Ponzi shit. But no, she got us into theatre, she got us into opera, opened my mind. Not wrong with theatre. Nothing. Not wrong with theatre. I can't wait to see you in the red, man. <laughs> Ronnie Costello is the genie, 2022. <laughs> you heard it here first. And yeah, so, she, and she got us into uni. In New Zealand, you didn't hate, hate uh, high school results to get into uni. You just get in. Uh, you hate to pay a wee bit, uh, but you just get in. So I started studying in New Zealand and moved into a flat in the city centre with my girlfriend and a couple of pals. Like, well, Wellington is amazing. And that was the start of um, a different phase of life. Yeah. So what were you studying? History, English, Lit and French. Was it her influence that put you to that? Or was this just something that got really interesting to you? So I'd always loved history and literature. So even when I was Biden New Biggin... Because um, that's where you were getting a lot of it. Yeah, like it was such like so. My mum's a, like a great storyteller. My granddad's a great storyteller. They're heavy. My family's always been massively into books. My auntie's written a book. My granddad's got got an autobiography out. Like, um, like my mum's written loads of stuff. Like writing is in the family. My mm. brother's a great writer. Um, so, like literature was something that came natural to me, and I felt that uh, studying that stuff actually really I couldn't believe how easy it came to us. Mm. Um, and that time I got to really experiment. So I was meeting all sorts of different people. So kind of like I had bright green dyed hair. I wore charity shop tweed suits. I went to all the parties. I was hearing a ball. But unfortunately, when I was about 15, I'd been diagnosed with anxiety and I'd never done anything about it. Uh, my mum's a bit of a hippie and she'd thrown the pills the doctor gave us in the bin. And um, it was obviously just like the trauma of all like, kind of like the separation and like there's a lot of domestic abuse and all that kind of stuff. And I'd never dealt with it. And I was studying full time, experimenting with all these things, but feeling like a fraud. Still had that kind of working class, wee Angus thing of think, thinking I didn't belong with all these fancy people, with this beautiful girlfriend, with all these cool pals. And I got into really destructive behavioural patterns. And eventually, I think I fucking lost my mind. Anyway, I thought beasties were living in my clothes. I dropped out of uni and moved to the Republic of Georgia. <laughs> Take it for there. <laughs> <laughs> that's it man I totally lost the run of myself for a wee while I was about 21 and the world had just got too much for me like see, see New Zealand sorry interject here but what's kind of the legal ages for like drinking and stuff there oh it's all about the same as here that's so it, okay. they've got the same thing where like I think between us we can admit that Scotland's drinking is probably not healthy but it is great fun 
Uh, Correct. New Zealand has Excuse me drinking non-alcoholic. I <laughs> sat here with a couple of non-alcoholic Heineken. Heineken. I'm drinking a couple of lemon and ginger tea. I know. I mean, who's <laughs> the bigger, who's the bigger arsehole? Uh, well, I'm doing it living the still, morning. Still me, still then, me. So, um, uh, but, uh, so they've got the same attitudes taken. <laughs> drinking, recreational drugs. Um, sort of like New Zealand women are the most promiscuous on earth. They have on average, according to statistics, 19 partners in life. Um, according to statistics according to statistics have you, you put that to have <laughs> you put that to the test but the thing is they can be honest about it here this is just an aside but so they had an earthquake in New Zealand while I was there right and there's no there there, there was quite high employment rate so there wasn't enough spare labour to rebuild the city of Christchurch so they they gave Irish labourers loads and loads and loads of uh, visas to come and help with the rebuild right so Irish folk, New Zealand women love shagging Irish men have a lot of Catholicism and tend not to use condoms. Irishmen came across to New Zealand, did a power of shagging, went back to Ireland after the six-month visas were up, loaded with syphilis, and then it spread, and it caused a syphilis outbreak in Ireland that was massive because nobody was using condoms. So they took New Zealand syphilis back to Ireland because of the earthquake, and it caused a huge outbreak, and they'd start sex education classes, they'd start releasing condoms en masse. The Irish had to reappraise their attitudes to sex and sexual health because of a New Zealand earthquake. Absolute top shaggers. <laughs> um, th- this is a question I ever thought of. What's it like being in an earthquake? Honestly, man... You think, I'm not sure, I, I think a lot of men have fantasies about how you'd act in a crisis. Like, you'd imagine if, you know, if a guy comes into the bar and causes trouble, you'll knock him out. You imagine that if there's, like, a, like a, a fire in your house, you'll you know, grab all the neighbours, huckle them outside, and, like, like, you'll be dead impressive. I thought in an earthquake, like, right, if there's an earthquake here, I'll get the lassie under the table, I'll get in the door frame, I'll call the neighbours to make sure they're all right. Honestly, when I was just lying in bed, and the hill house starts shaking, you go, whoa! And then about 10 seconds later, the house stops shaking and you go, well, that was frightening. <laughs> and like, if the house had collapsed, I'd be dead. And that's all there is to it. Like, it is just, we're, we are so no ready for that. Uh, no. Like, come and face Scotland. No, no, no. <laughs> um, so anyway, Georgia. Well, great. What? <laughs> so the Republic of Georgia, I've been studying, like I said, I've been studying history. Have I had a bit of a soft spot with the Soviet Union? Um, I've always been interested in a working class revolution where we just guillotine all the rich cunts and run the show ourselves. Always been fundamentally interested in that as a social experiment. Now, the Soviet Union, I did think, worked, but just because it didn't work overall doesn't mean there isn't any interesting lessons to be learned along the way. There was 70 years they were running more than that. Uh, so there's things to be learned, I thought. At, uh, history at uni in New Zealand, I had been reading about young Stalin. He was fae the Republic of Georgia. He was raised poor in this country, Reading about him, I read about this place. It was mountainous. It was very culturally rich. Um, it uh, they invented wine. Wine originated and was developed in Georgia. Um, and they had loads of donkeys, which are my favourite animal. And so one night I was chatting about Georgia a lot and my girlfriend at the time said, hey, I've just seen that Georgia have a scheme where they'll fly you over there and give you like a week's language training if you agree to go and live with the family, work on the farm and do a bit of English teaching to the family and to the local community. Amen. I was like, ah, he signs up for that then. So I dropped out of uni and off I pissed to Georgia for a year. <laughs> Aye. Where do you even start? Okay. Loved it, man. Loved it. Like, properly loved it. Um, so I got sent to this village called Terjola, um, which is... Ah, I know it well. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Near Kutaisi. 
So, uh, oh, nope. Yeah, so I went to see Kutaisi FC a few times. Good fun. That's a level of football. Like, if you think St. Johnston are farmers. Um, so, yeah, I lived with this uh, big former police chief for the Soviet days was the Granda. He was very diabetic, so he moved like the tin man. And he was a huge muscular man with a great big grey mouser. And I lived with, a, um, they had a couple of grandsons that lived with him. There's very few working age people in the, in the countryside because they hated being in the big cities hustling to make a living. And um, so there was nobody between sort of 25 and 50, mm. 60. So it was grandparents and grandsons that were a good bit younger than me. And I, I bathed there, I smoked like a lum. I taught English a bit at a local school and I took part in the harvests and things like, like bringing in the grapes, bringing in the firewood, bringing in the hay, like with like pitchforks, like piling up. And I'd worked Monday to Thursday. Uh, and then there was a boy in the next village called Ara and he was Armenian, but he'd lived in London, so spoke English fluently. Thursday afternoon, we'd meet up on the high street, buy two muckle bottles of beer and then just hitchhike and we didn't have a plan we'd just hitchhike off and we'd disappear until Monday morning and we'd go up in the mountains we'd go in the cities we'd just go Ken we'd go chasing chasing excitement chasing excitement chasing adventure and man we got in some scrapes like <laughs> it's, I mean it's, again I probably know that surprise given what you've to- told us for the sort of teenage years going up but I mean everyone else is desperate for me to ask what did you do next <laughs> uh, so the the Georgia thing um, worked a real treat for me because I think like I hadn't recognised my own value at any point like I'd always thought of myself as quite worthless like that whole financial crisis thing it was difficult being 17 year old, be a lot of folks will empathise with this a lot of folks 17, 18 year old as a man, probably as a woman as well you're full of energy you're full of the desires to do stuff and be part of things and nobody wanted a thing to do with me I couldn't find a job in Dundee I couldn't find a job in Forfar I was applying for jobs in Shetland and getting rejected like and it was this tremendous sense of there is no point in me being alive there is like my mum was wanting us at the house and there was no place for me to go what am I meant to do like what is life for God knows and it was going to Georgia where I could meaningfully take part in harvests, where I could really help folk with their English, where I could help folk that were there expand their horizons and say, here, there is there is a hail world out there that you can be part of. It helped me get a sense of my own worth. And that really changed things for us. So after that, I came came back to Scotland and decided just to like... Because one thing I didn't like about living in New Zealand, one thing I didn't like about living in Georgia, I'm no fan of being a foreigner. For whatever reason, I didn't like being a migrant. You get treated different. Um, every party you go to New Zealand, they're like, oh, you're Scottish. Oh, I've got a Scottish granny. It's like, oh, fucking clacking. But you're always an outsider, even when you've been there years. Even when you've got the passport, you're an outsider. And I love, I really want to be part of things. I really mm. want to be part of things. And so I came home to Scotland, um, crash landed a bit. Um, like I came back from Georgia, admittedly, probably wine-dependent. And very used to a very different culture. And uh, it took us a wee while to settle back into being here. Um, but I just made a real run of it. Got lucky with a couple of jobs. Got working for Historic Scotland as a tour guide mm. um, in like historical properties up in Elgin. Again, nearest job to him I could find was bloody Elgin. And um, yeah, started working as a tour guide. Just kind of minimum wage stuff. But I really found my niche in researching, in storytelling, in um, engaging with our culture, engaging in our history. 
and just uh, for there things started to improve. Aye, uh, but before we get to that, you've obviously jumped about there. Where does the love of kind of travel come from? Oh yeah, good point. So like, definitely, so definitely from my parents. It, like as much as. As much as we were definitely raised poor and stuff, I was actually conceived in Texas. And both my brother and sister were born there when my parents were illegal immigrants. So my dad in um, Texas was part of like an illegal importation of Greek marble. Uh, so they'd bring in shipping containers of Greek marble, marble probably nicked for archaeological sites and all that. And he said that the, the shipping containers were sent to Texan oil barons to day up their big, horrible McMansions in Greek marble, you know? And he said they'd, they'd buy a shipping container... The first third would be proper marble. The latter third, two thirds would be rubble, <laughs> like trash, concrete and that. They'd sell it to these oil barons for a big scalp of cash, fold the business, disappear for a wee while and then set back up and do it again. In the days before the internet, and get away with that kind mm. of business. And my mum worked um, in a 24-hour bar, uh, working the night shift, sort of 12 to 5 a.m. Um, and she used to tack folks' car keys and pistols off them when they came in. <laughs> And then she'd take them all out when they got leather, she'd take them around the corner at the diner for breakfast. Um, and yeah, it was just a case of they used to have to fly to Canada, then hitchhike over the border and catch the bus down to Texas, which is no small journey. And I think both, it was a bit of trouble because they couldn't get health insurance, illegal migrants, all that kind of stuff. And both my um, brother and sister had been born in interesting circumstances over there. So mum was just wanting the NHS for me. So she managed to get him. I was born here. But they had actually, so they'd been travelling for many years, 10 years in Texas, but they'd actually, I think they'd met in Malaysia. I think um, they travelled through Pakistan. This is through the 1980s. And my mum was, you know, a Karnusti woman who was a feminist and would travel Pakistan like, you know, shorts and a vest when Abdi else is wearing veils. And it got them in serious bother. A Pakistan, um, a Pakistan member of parliament offered to tour them round and pick them up from their youth hostel or whatever they were staying in his official car with his two armed guards. They drove a wee bit. My dad realised they were driving out of the town and says, hey, what's going on here? The two armed guards put the gun against my dad's head and say, well, we're going to rape your missus and we're going to murder you both and leave you in the, in, the, in the woods. And they get driven out to the woods. And it's only then my mum thought, right, uh, lie. Say the British embassy know you're picking us up. The British Embassy know we're here. But like, my dad's silent. He, he said, he's telling me he's convinced they're out to get, like, just shot. Like, guns against them. Because mm. you don't see what, you didn't see white women in relatively skimpy clothing in the days. And this boy thinks, well, I'm having that. And they get taken out there, a ball head away for getting murdered. My mum says, the British Embassy know we're here. The politician thinks about it, chats with his pals, and thinks, I'll just fucking dump them. Dumps them in the woods and drives away. And so they got in all these kind of scrapes. But that, even growing up in Newbiggin, hearing the, like, kind of, I didn't get to tell that story when I was young, but hearing the stories about travelling, like, my dad ran away for him at, like, 16 and went to work in farms and work on the motorway as a labourer and that kind of thing. And all that, all that was kind of infused. It was always a possibility to go hitchhiking. It was always a possibility to go on adventure, to go travelling. It wasn't a case of, like, I'm going on my gap yard. It was a thing of like, you can be broke at home or you can be broke somewhere else. Like, <laughs> and I got five yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still on it. <laughs> I still know that definitely the parents um, had an openness to travel. Yeah, it's incredible as well. You know what I mean? Like you say, it's back then. I mean, it's, <laughs> you're thinking about like, no information, no phones. No. Like, I think my dad was a stoner, just to tell, but like, uh, like it was properly like the, the late hippie, early 80s stage. 
mm. when you could just drift about. Yeah. Like uh, before the whole serial killer thing. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, but you could just drift about. You could just cut about, do we like. Yeah. But let's say you mentioned you got back Elgin as a as a tour guide. <laughs> that was funny, man. So I was, uh, there's a there's a pub that folk listen to this, like mine that's shut down there, the Creighton Coach Inn by Maniki. Yeah. So I was picking up shifts work at the, uh, the pub there on a move team, which I liked. Um, and I asked the bar at large when I got this job offer for Elgin. I was like, yeah, boys, anybody can about Elgin? Silence. Then one farmer goes, a lot of white settlers up there. <laughs> which is like, oh. which in case you, you aren't aware, is a sort of, Racist term for English farmers. <laughs> that that was the sum total of my community's knowledge about Elgin. So I was flying blind. So but did you? Did you? You obviously need to move up to that area at least. Yeah, yeah. I moved to Burkhead, which is a wee village on the coast, an old okay. Pictish settlement, and it's uh, great. Like, really enjoyed it. Um, loved being a tour guide. Um, played a bit of football up there. Played for the local rugby league team over the summer, and just did my best. Like, appreciated the opportunity I was getting, and really, like, tried to do my best. Which again, it's in a like you're saying, it's when I mean, you're getting rejected for so many jobs, eh? it probably gets to that stage you would have just took any 100%. It was two jobs at that time. It was between working at the leisure center in Lairwick, um, which had been interviewed for over the phone and was away, like had been invited up for an in person interview 15 grand a year. Wow, aye. wow, aye. wow, um, or uh, Elgin, they, they were the jobs I could get. So I went to I went to Elgin because it was marginally nearer, and then. Is it is it when you're doing that you're doing the sort of tour guide stuff as well the, the kind of real kind of interest in Scots and that comes sort because of, I'm assuming you're going around castles and all that sort of stuff and you're learning more and more about it. Exactly. Aye. So like obviously like Newbiggin Primary uh, taught us Scots language and taught it unselfconsciously taught us Scots songs Scots stories. Um, we won the Scots School of the Year when I was at primary school. It was. Um, it was us versus a, a Shetland school called Waz in the final. And I think we got joint first in the country. So I was always dead. Like my mum and my grandparents were very happy about Scots. Mm. My granny had the Scots dictionary at home. And we were very well aware that we spoke Scots and we spoke English. And it was a language and you're bilingual. And it wasn't a, that big a deal. And Scots culture and Scots song was part of why we were. And it wasn't a... Dundonian say a really horrible and complex relationship with their own identity, their own language. Don't they speak Ori? Like that's, you'll sound working class, you'll sound like trash, you'll sound ill-educated. We didn't hear that, eh? So moving to Elgin, again, so they speak Doric up there, like that kind of northeast Scots, mm -hmm. which is different to what we speak, but it's not that different. And I loved it because they're dead confident we are. Abdi speaks it all the time and they love it. So I loved uh, being able to move there and use my own dialect and let them use their dialect and just learn about it and um, yeah I just got so immersed in the history and the language and the culture and so that was the first time I'd learned a dialect that wasn't in my own and I really enjoyed that I really enjoyed the fact it's like yeah this isn't just a new big thing you speak it and all this is class and it's like Again, it's that thing of I want to belong to communities. I want to get to ken people. I want to be a part of things. And language is one way that lets me do that. History is another. And to be fair, you told me and Paul that we speak Scots, whereas we just thought we were easy bastard Dundonians. <laughs> exactly that. And you are nae, man. You are nae. Can you speak? And uh, for them at home, when Noroni was uh, kicking about my flat beforehand, he speaks like broad Dundee. Huh? When the microphone goes on, you day. You can't help yourself. You got it's slow. just me you're speaking to. You got slow. You didn't hate it. Abdi can't speak yourself. Mm, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Maybe no. Maybe no. But um, yeah, that's it. You are bilingual and you have that ability. And that's that's rare and it's beautiful. And it's to be encouraged. 
an award-winning bilingualist. Is that even an award-winning bilingual podcast? Who even knows? Um, but yeah, let's say for us, it was it was quite strange when that that come round because we we are two boys for Dundee, and we've kind of and we've sat in here and, and and said that before, but just before the Scottish Language Award uh, this year had come around. But you know, the more you sort of looked in it, we were like, well, maybe we do then speak like that but that's and I think we said it when we were here and for people that haven't seen it but we were you know we were going back and me and Paul's upbringing in Dundee and what we were told at school and whatever else and I remember like when you were saying Ori that was always the word he was done speak Ori you know she's done a day but we all do it self-repressing yeah and that's it and I think it's purely pure I think it's down to when there's a microphone in front of you or you're doing something, for me, it's always just slow down. The biggest thing is slowing down just because it can... If you're in a group at Andonians, Scottish people, you can get away with it. But going at the pace we can go at when you're in America, doesn't work. If you're in London, it doesn't work. If you're in Manchester, it doesn't work. They don't change. But I, th- I just... Some, it's something I've always done. I've always, always done probably done it it's called code switching and there's nothing wrong with that right I think it's 100% correct to ken when to speak a language when to speak another mm. but it's that thing of doing it consciously and with pride saying I'm actually a great speaker of Scots and it is a rich language with a beautiful culture and it is what I'm fae it's mm. part of who I am it's part of my family's tradition and I will speak that at the right times and then when it's the right time to speak English ken what I'll speak that well as well I am fluently bilingual it's about Macking that positive thing instead of saying a lot of like one thing I pulled you and Paul up for, and I'm sure it's something that folk at home will understand. You talked about Scots seeping in or dropping into Scots. As Paul would have said that. I wouldn't have, I'm not clever enough to think that. <laughs> but it's as if Scots <laughs> is this like malignant force yeah. instead of it being as, like, as equal and mm. uh, similar to English. Like, just because it's similar to English doesn't it make it worse. Like, mm. um, the Norwegians speak very similar to the Icelandics. They're two different languages. To me and you, they sound about the same, but they're of exactly the same status. Mm. And that's what we need to understand. Scots is just as good as English. And we speak them both, and we, sh- we should be proud to speak them both. Mm. Take us on what your journey would be for these jobs in Elgin, mm-hmm. to how we first come to meet w- over Zoom, but it was on the back of your first documentary for the BBC. Oh which is Rebel Tongue. Mm-hmm. So what's the, how do you get from being this, the tour guide to producing this documentary all about the Scots language? It was funny, like, so working with Historic Scotland, I'd, I, um, I, I used to keep diaries and stuff and I'd write them in Scots and I used to um, write for a wee blog called Bella Caledonia. It's not a wee blog, it gets loads of readers, but I briefly wrote a wee bit for uh, Bella Caledonia. I think it was a boy, Billy Kay, actually, who's a big Arab and broadcaster, all that kind of stuff. He kens my auntie, and she'd mentioned that I'm like like it, he, he's obviously into Scots as a kind of career, like no as a career, it's obviously his passion, but he's made a career of it. Um, and my auntie was like, "Oh my my nephew Ali's dead into Scots, and he likes his writing." So he'd give us a chance to <coughs> to write for Bella Caledonia, and it was just natural to me to date in Scots um, anyway. And I wrote for a magazine in Linlithgow when I moved there for Historic Scotland called The Black Bitch. Uh, the magazine, which is, isn't it what you think it is? The emblem of Linlithgow is a big black dog called the Black Bitch. And that's what the magazine's called. And they asked if I'd write an article and I just naturally wrote it in Scots and they were happy. It was a review of electric bikes I wrote. 
Um, and I wrote it in Scots. I know, so I wrote that for the, the magazine and my auntie then showed it to Billy Kay and said, here, my, my nephew actually quite, like, quite, quite likes writing in Scots. Billy got us into Bella Caledonia and that started a thing where Bella Caledonia was the first time I ever heard any negative feedback. Where folk were like, that's no real language. That's that's just pish. That's, you're macking that up. And I was like, sorry, man. Like, so I've got a funny accent for all my travels, right? Obviously, I've got a New Zealand dad. When we moved to Newbiggin in the first place, both my brother and sister had thick Texan accents. Um, and like, growing up in the village, there's some folk that were dead posh and there's some folk that were dead uh, working class. And so I've got this real melange. <coughs> This melange of an accent, mm. which is, uh, I appreciate it doesn't always sound authentic. Can't help that. I wish it was different. It is what it is. Um, but yeah, it was the first time I've ever seen that Scots was a thing that nationally we needed to have a discussion about. And so just while I was doing other jobs and while I was doing my uni and that kind of stuff, because I went back to uni eventually, um, I started to push Scots. Like, So I wrote a Scots uh, column in the student newspaper up at Aberdeen. I then recruited other students uh, while we're also face Scots speaking backgrounds, got them writing in Scots in the student newspaper. Then I got employed by the uni for a couple of years to get out in the communities and they work helping encourage Scots speakers to become Scots writers or to become Scots podcasters, whatever. Um, and then teaching, um, I used to teach on the teacher training course for new teachers at Aberdeen Uni, teaching them about how to unlock their Scots potential. Like, use user bilingual, use hey, this second skill. All your bairns in school here, use it, use it. And so I, I've all, since, since that period of getting slagged off for using Scots in a magazine, I realised that Scotland as a country needs to come to terms with the fact that many of us are bilingual. Yeah. I, it's a, it was fascinating when we, I, I remember we first chatted about it. Yeah. And you obviously come on the podcast about it because you had the link to United and it was an easy one for us. But if, if people haven't seen it, could you give us a kind of, Review or no review? I'll do the review part. Um, <laughs> it's five five stars. T- <laughs> That's my review. T- t- tell us about the documentary. Right, so the documentary came about because um, I'd I'd got a column, a regular column in the Herald, uh, which was just about Ken, the same pressure right about in the Courier, but it, but it was in Scots because they, they'd approached us and said we'd like to hear a regular column in Scots for our national readership, and I was like, yeah, cool, crack on, happy to do that. And uh, the BBC had seen that, got us in for a meeting, and said, can you do a uh, can you write us a documentary about uh, Scots? And um, so I wrote it, and it was basically just trying to explore the nick that Scots is in the day. And that is, explore, you've got to explore the different dialect communities, right? So doing in the borders, they'll hear they are in relationship with Scots. They're very proud of it, but it's very localised to where they are. So they're very proud of you, like your sort of Wattle Scots, um, your your Hoik dialects and that kind of stuff. Up in the northeast, they're dead proud of their Doric poets. They kind of see themselves as a wee bit separate. Ken, they've got like Nan Shepherd. They've got your like say Charles Murray. Um, you've got your like say um, like the Doric singers and all that kind of stuff with the balladry. And then in Glasgow, you've got your kind of working class kind of uh, edgy people, your Billy Connollys that use the Glasgow dialect as and it's. And so what I tried to do with the documentary was go to the different dialect regions, hear about their lived experiences, which are very different region to region, but also weave them together and show that there are different parts of a jigsaw that you, that needs to be put back together. And the documentary looked at the past when Scots was the national language spoken by all the kings, spoken in parliament, spoken by all the lawyers, and it was an official tongue. And we all understood that until about 1940, 
So for, from the like 1450 till 1940, Abdi in Scotland understood that Scots was a language and we all spoke it. And that was because we were part of the British Empire. The British Empire is a multi-ethnic state. Hold on to your hats here. A multi-ethnic state where you could be different things. A multi-ethnic empire, rather. So you could be Welsh, you could be Scottish, you could be Punjab. Within, within there was hierarchies within that, but you could be whatever you wanted to be. And Scots language was a feature of Scottish identity within empire. When the empire collapsed after the Second World War, we became, or the UK started to become, a mono-ethnic nation-state, where there was one language, one people, one way of being, and all that was built around English norms, Southeast English norms. So English dialects got totally uh, hated. So the English dialects have all died off pretty much. They used to be so rich, the Yorkshire dialect, the Geordie dialect, got completely attacked and demonised. Scots got under attack, Gaelic got crushed, and we had this 40-year period of real cultural oppression in Scotland. And we're coming out of that. So the documentary is saying... This is where we are. We have 1.5 million Scots speakers that didn't ken their Scots speakers half the time, that didn't ken their part of a national language. We hear all this history, we hear all this literature. As we start to rebuild Scotland as a country, which is what we're doing, we're in that process to with our parliament, with our links to the outside world, with our publications, we are rebuilding the idea of Scotland as a country. Scots needs to come on that journey. Uh, so the documentary is about that, basically. Uh, what did you find? See, during the documentary, I've not actually asked you this before. Um, I remember watching it, but you spoke to just people in the street, didn't you? I did. And showed them sort of, it was words, weren't you? Were you asking them? Uh, that was in uh, Lithgow High Street, Linlithgow High Street. So I got 15, 15 Scots words, fade the dead obvious to the way mere mm. uh, archaic or complex, and just found out how many of them they can. Yeah. If they thought of themselves as Scots speakers first of all, and then showed them a bunch of words to see what their fluency actually was. Yeah, and it was really interesting because, like, you done it to us as well, maybe uh -huh. to me and Paul, and uh -huh. it's, but some of it's so obvious, and some of it's like, nah, like, it, that's just no, 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 no for me uh -huh. on it, which was really interesting. But uh -huh. the people in the street, I mean... Can you remember what they said? Like, if they were Scots speakers or what they... Exactly. So so the, the older generation, which mm. ties in with my theory, like, I'm talking about, you're talking about your folk that are in their 70s, mm. they were raised to understand Scots was a language. Folk that are 50, 40, 30 weren't raised to see Scots as a language. I'm in that. Jesus. Ex exactly, exactly. In your 30s. Um, weren't raised to see Scots language, so didn't they see themselves as mm. Scots speakers, but were just as fluent, mostly, as the older folk. The younger generation, the twenties, the folk in their twenties and teens had no idea what was going on. They kept a few of the words, but they didn't really have any concept of this. And the big difference, and this is the same for you, the oldest generation, your 70-year-olds, were literate in Scots because they read a lot of Scots literature. So they'd read a lot of, when they were at school, they would have read a lot of Burns, a lot of Walter Scott. They would have read a lot of Hugh McDermott, uh, Nan Shepherd, as normal. So their vocabulary would have been expanded. Whereas for yourself, Scots was a purely oral language. So if your community didn't use a word, you didn't ken it. Whereas with English, because you read so much in English, you have loads of vocab that you didn't use every day, but you know what it means. Um, so I, we found that the literate generations were the oldest, and they were easily the most confident. They kent just about all the words. The 30, 40, 50-year-olds was a lot more mixed. They had a lot more mixed attitudes. It depended where they were coming from. Working class folk obviously were much, much better than middle class folk at it. Uh, but then the youngest generation were just... Glake it. You're not lying. 
<laughs> you're generally no lying for that. Um, how do you kind of feel about the? Uh, you see a lot of stuff online, uh, and obviously it comes on the back of you know the Scots Language Awards and stuff, which will tie into here. But uh-huh. there still seems to be a lot of people that seem to doubt Scots as a language. I mean, you see it for certain individuals that are trying to promote it online, and then they just get battered doing battered for you know for arseholes really is what I'm trying to say but like why like, why do you think it is or what What have you had said to you or what have you seen that people have said and you know how, how can we keep keep it going because it's our language yeah yeah 100% so I think a lot of the online stuff is to do with sexism so most of the abuse that I get online is largely legitimate they say things like he talks like a fanny can he argue like literally can he argue Um so I didn't get abused for using Scots, I get abused for using it in the wrong way, which is a different thing. And I think there's a question of my authenticity and legitimacy because folk think I come across as quite middle class. And so maybe they didn't trust me as to be a safe holder, safeguarder of their language, which is cool. I actually do sympathise and appreciate that. Um, even then, DUTV, uh, a, a guy I can fade the bus that I used to travel on before the DUTV was like, Ali, man, like, I can you love Scots. I know your story. Everyone else thinks you're a wide man. You're going to have to tone it down. And it's like, yeah, fair enough. Like, that's that's a public perception thing. I think that's quite personal to me. Whereas the abuse you see online for folk that are promoting it, your likes of... Uh, so Len Penny is a big one. Iona Fife's a big one. Janie Godley, before she got cancelled, was quite a big one. Um, and they the thing they hate in common is they're female. And folk don't see women as uh, legitimate bearers of Scottish culture. Yeah, I, I think it's a real shame because I think the stuff Lenny Penny does is absolutely incredible. Like, 100% um, I, uh, for this will sound really wrong. Um, I came across her <laughs> oh, <laughs> on TikTok, and uh, I tell you, I, I didn't mean it like that, but that's the only way to say it, right? So, on TikTok, and uh, because I'm close and I think I'm cool and relevant by being on TikTok, but and you're just thinking, this stuff's brilliant. Like, this stuff's really cool. And uh-huh. listen, as a older guy, Scots speaker, Dundonian, whatever. She would say words, and I'd go, there's no danger, that's a real Scots word. But then she'd say like 10 other words, and I'd go, oh yeah, I'm with it, because I'm still learning as well. But right. it's the fact that she's she's taking the word, telling you what it is, telling you what it means, telling you how to use it, and sometimes just putting in a cheeky way of using use it in a line. And then I just look at the all the shit that she gets on Twitter and, and, and TikTok and stuff. And I think she's stopped being on social media at this minute. She's but, breather, right? but she's had loads of draft stuff. So she's still posting her stuff that she's had. And I just think that's absolutely incredible. I wonder if I, I don't know as much about I know she's a singer, right. but she's trying to do stuff for the language as well. And I just think, what the hell? Like, it's... Are we still... How can we still be in that? that because it's a 20-year-old woman, 25-year-old woman... I don't know what Jenny Godley is, 85-year-old woman or whatever, <laughs> trying to do their bits for the language before she got cancelled. Right. Um, but, like, it shouldn't be. It's 2021, man. Aye, we're no, we're no, we're no good at letting women speak still. Uh, we're still no comfortable yet for whatever reason. I think elements of it's getting better. I would say that we all hate it. Try and, try and, I would say that as men in Scotland, we should just tack a year off criticising all women. Like, and even if they deserve it, just hear a year off criticising women and get out the habit of it. Let women just be for a bit mm. and then we can get, like, we need to, we need to just give them space to be because it's such, like, women online just get so, such torrents of abuse. Yeah. 
and um, especially with things around uh, Scottish culture because like I get away with talking about Scottish culture a lot because I look a wee bit like the cunt for the pollo jokes box like a bit a bit like the boy the, the shot put on the glen quite a lot like him I'd say um, so there's a legitimacy to be to me being a cultural yeah. tradition bearer yeah I, I just find it because I, I think at the start when, when I was bringing these other days back for this and I I remember seeing some of Lenny Penny's stuff and I thought she'd be brilliant. I'd love to speak to her. I'd love to speak to her about it and find out more about her. Because she's young as well. Uh-huh. Like she's, whether, I don't know if she's been educated, she's self-educated, she's whatever. I don't know her story and I think it's a really interesting one. And then you see all the shit that she's got to put up, man. I'm thinking, man, that, that sucks. Like, you know, it, it, listen, it doesn't at all. Um, but it will turn it to a slight positive as well, though, that you hosted the Scottish Language Awards with her. This yeah, year. that was it. So seamless. I've, I've been pushing hard. Seamless. <laughs> I've been pushing hard to get the Scots Language Awards in Dundee for Wee Wiley, because a lot of the communities around here are fifty percent Scots speaking or higher. Yeah. But Ronnie, and you'll totally appreciate this, most of them didn't realise it or use it or a, like. There's a lack. Of, and folk, listen to this, please. Like, think about it. You probably have Scots language skills. Maybe you're not hundred percent fluent as you are with English, but you've got this skill here. Do use it, like recognise your own value, recognise your own cultural richness. So I want to get the Scots language in Dundee. I think we're going to hit in Dundee again next year with an even bigger crowd because we're still COVID restricted this year. Um, but I w- really want Dundonians to recognise, didn't call yourselves Ori, recognise that you're just beautiful people with the same cultural depth as anyone in Venice, as anyone in Rome. Like yous are of tremendous value. And so the Scots Language Awards was in the Gardine Theatre this year. And there was loads of great nominees like Scots School of the Year. Cleppington Primary was up there because they've been teaching Scots. Morgan Academy was in there because they've been doing Scots language projects for the last couple of years now. Um, the young generation aren't they being raised with these hang-ups about Scots and it is this traumatised generation like the 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds I want them to really appreciate what they've got and um, so one thing they can do the Scots Language Awards is great fun one thing they can do and we're trying to raise awareness around this, the census is coming up 2022, Scotland's going to do a census and it's going to hear a question do you have skills in the Scots language? can you read it, speak it, write it? if you can speak it, put your name down there Put it down in your senses. Let the world ken that you speak Scots. Make that your first positive political act for Scots. Yeah. And come along with the Scots Language Awards next year. I'm going to get Ronnie and Paul there. I'm 100% getting them on yeah, hosting duties. I was, I was, I was gutted I couldn't go this year. I, was, I think I was already working or whatever. But yeah, I think it would have been great. I mean, obviously, you know, we got nominated last year for social media arseholes of the year or whatever and, <laughs> and obviously it was um, probably luckily that the, an easy win an easy win the audio stream didn't work as I'm pretty sure I said get it right fucking up yeah I think was the <laughs> acceptance speech I had um, but it, I, I thought it was incredible I mean for us as well you know to, to kind of get first told that we were you know and me and Paul are like what's this dick telling us that we speak Scots and I'm thinking that's what we pretty much do really watch the documentary and thought yeah, we definitely do. Mm. Um, and then get that, and it was, it was all pretty cool. Yeah, we're gutted. But, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If you get it into a, an event, we'll we'll definitely be there next year. And um, listen, the award was pretty cool. So, uh, no, no, 100%. I'll that, you know what I mean? It was, it was Paul's listening to this, I want to say, he uses loads of Scots when he's speaking to you on the podcast. Mm. His loan report's in English. I want to hear him day in, <laughs> I want to hear him day in, in Dundonian Scots one week. Like, properly sit there and think about it. Because he writes his loan reports by the sounds of it. Oh, man. It. It's like three pages of A4. <laughs> it's, it's generally like... Which isn't easy when you hit it right in crayons like he does. Oh, honestly. 
but chisel and a brick. I think when he was at school, slate. Was slate, slate was uh, a knife. Still got an abacus counting his money. <laughs> but I, so I think I'd like to hear him dying in Scots, like right, right in Scots. Challenge yourself, Paul. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's one of them. Like I, I don't know. I think it's la- no lazy when you're speaking, but I think we can. It's maybe Noah's done donations when you get lazy, but we're probably like a lot of people, like Glasgow. Um, even your your other places like your Liverpool, your Newcastle, you've got real distinct accents. Mm. And then you could really, when you speak to someone of your own, you can go at a totally different pace till you speak to someone who asks you, what? Eh? <laughs> What's going on? And, I, and I've always quite, quite liked that, but I've always been cautious. But given it, you know, flirting with a broadcasting career for a little bit over the years, you just had to learn that. Just, just, just slow a little bit. Uh, Whereas, stick a few cans in us, eh? I mean, I'm, you'd think I'm speaking Swahili at one point, eh? Like, I really don't care. It's class. But, um, but yeah, I think the, the whole Scots language and the push of it, I just, when, when like, say, I was, yeah, speak, knew this was coming up and it's been planned for a long time and I was thinking, I better, I better look into this again. And uh, it was when I was going on about Scots language, I was just doing it and obviously Billy's name comes up loads and he's, he's a good Arab as well. So listen, doesn't matter what he does elsewhere, he's a good Arab, so that's fine. But then I was looking in, like, it was a was, penny, I own a five, and you're just thinking, what is going on, man? Aye, like, the toxic shit around them. Yeah, and I, I just didn't get it. I mean, I saw one, I saw one the other day and... Somebody's saying, listen, there are a lot of faceless people as well mm. on across social media and, and she addressed that on TikTok. So I don't know how new or whatever the video was. I mean, I'm trying to act like I know how TikTok works, but it, <laughs> it certainly doesn't seem to be the latest video you see sometimes. But it's just saying, look, I'll, I'll wear what I want. I'll wear makeup for dinner or, or whatever. And you're just thinking, how could somebody be caring like that much? Honestly, man, like, it's, it is vile. I would say, uh, in preparation for speaking to Ronnie today, I had an hour-long interview with the Wall Street Journal. Oh, they rang us course. up to get my opinions on uh, Scottish culture and language and uh, politics. Because, of course, I am cultural ambassador to the world. That's it. Um, and the thing they couldn't believe is like, why are you so fucking weird about your language? <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and it's because we have been this, like, the best description of Red of Scots is, is the submerged national tongue of a submerged nation. No, sorry, the partially submerged national tongue of a partially submerged nation. Because Scotland wasn't a real country for the last 80 years. Because we were a real country as part of the empire. There's no problem with that. It was only when Britain became a unified nation state and the empire collapsed that we became a non-country. Yeah. And we're becoming a, we need to become a country again and we need to sort ourselves out in our attitudes, not just to language, to culture, to appreciate of, like like the wider... Uh, place that we are and the fact that it is decent and we are worth, as worthwhile as anybody else but language is a bit of a push because I can and it works yeah this is hell yeah of course it is uh, listen one thing you've uh, been speaking about lately on social media I noticed is um, male sexual entitlement which is obviously pretty a big topic for me to bring up uh, but yeah well, what's what are you involved in here what's what's the story What's what can we do What's what are you trying to get across this one is so closely linked to what you're chatting about with the abuse that Len Penny and Iona Fife and others get online what they get a lot is rape threats what a lot they get is uh, hypersexualization of all their content even when it's blatantly not sexualized. like as you say if Len Penny does a, a video about like the word out with which is a Scots word meaning something that's out with something else. Um, that's out with my purview kind of thing. And she does it wearing a normal top, but you can see the outline of her breasts because she's a human woman. 
you get loads of folks as opposed to what kind of other women well (laughs) interstellar yeah okay (laughs) she's a human woman a human woman who has breasts which is normal Uh, loads of folks say things like she's gatting for it she's needing road all this really really sexualised horrible stuff as you say just a young lassie talking about language online like and so um, and that is related to uh, what people are referring to these days as male sexual entitlement and it comes from the idea that men have the right and sort of in our culture and I certainly had this growing up you felt you had the obligation to go and uh, chat to women in public all the time You'd do it partly to show off to uh, your pals. You'd approach women in bars to make yourself, like it was kind of almost an adrenaline thing for me. You'd go up and chat up lassies. Even if they said, oh, I've got a boyfriend, you'd maybe keep cracking onto them. You'd maybe make a joke about it. Like, oh, I didn't fancy anyway, whatever. Like, and you'd never, one thing that you'd never, when I was a 17-year-old at Viewfield Hotel, you'd never think about how the woman was feeling about this. You would do it with your lad pals and it was all about you felt you had you felt you had the right to do it I, I said uh, I got a feminist girlfriend when I was about 21 who completely altered my worldview, like took a spanner to my head and corrected me um, but one thing that I did when I moved back to Scotland was hear all the time about women going in nightclubs and getting their bums felt getting their tits grabbed just by anonymous hands in the darkness because we do think we can do it and now we do it in group chats as well. Uh, working in football, I have, and being part of group chats around football, like uh, buses and stuff like that, you see some hostile, toxic, anti-female shit in there, which is very hard to address because it's like, it's amongst pals and it's all a bunch of lads having a laugh. But what you're doing is, you and me aren't going to go and take that sense of entitlement out and do something horrible with it. But people that do go out to be rapists or people that do go out and commit sexual assault do so with a sense of male sexual entitlement which is developed in those group chats, which is developed in those conversations, which is developed by reaching out and grabbing a woman's arse in a nightclub with no permission. That's that's how they start to get a sense of, hey, we're above women. We can do stuff to women and there's no comeback to us. And at the most extreme end, this is all part of a continuum, I walk down uh, across the law a lot to get down the tune. And I walk past almost every day, past the grave of a woman who is murdered at random by a man for no reason other than she was a woman. The boy got jailed, he got released and attacked another woman with dumbbells in Templeton Woods. Women are not safe. They're no safe. They're no safe. Dundee is the domestic abuse capital of Scotland. This is folk, me and you know, Ronnie, that are doing this. It is folk... A supporters bus I used to get on, I'm not going to say anything about it for legal reasons, but I stopped getting on it because I heard, I found out for some of the women that the boy that organised the bus was grabbing them when they're asleep, like feeling them up when they're asleep. This is a problem that's all around us. It's our pals, it's folk we're in the pub with, it's men around us in Dundee that are going home and battering their wives or intimidating their partners or coercing them. It's men around us, men at our work, that are going out to commit these sexual assaults. Like, we... And we're all part of it by allowing the lowest level. This male sexual entitlement, we all help develop by laughing at a sexist joke, by being part of a group chat and seeing sexist stuff in there and not questioning it, not challenging it. And it's that thing of we've developed such an unhealthy, we've allowed such an unhealthy attitude to women to continue to exist for our traditional backgrounds and not challenged it. We've challenged racism quite well. Um, increasingly challenging racism quite well and we haven't put violence against women as the same importance 
as violence or abuse against people of colour. And we just need to say, Ken, what, we've all been wrong on this. I've been wrong on this. We just need to start correcting our behaviour. I don't know how you feel about all this. Yeah, it, 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 again, it's it's something that you, I think a lot of people subconsciously know really think about it until it was raised, until mm. the point's raised. Um, yeah, we all hear that epiphany moment where we realise, holy fuck, yeah. I've been part of something that's not. I think, I mean, certainly, I mean, no, no, not any time in the last 20 years, but certainly in your kind of late teens, early 20s when you're out. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I could give permission to be fell up and it'll not happen. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, crack on. But but then, yeah, that, it, it was, it was just, it was, it, it will sound really, really horrible. It was like the done thing. But yeah. but that's maybe what we thought was flirting. Maybe we thought that's, that's what it was or whatever. And I think, especially that, you know, Mardi Gras got a lot to answer for. Um, but uh, yeah, and it would be something that would have happened then, certainly. No, for me, in terms of <laughs> a long, long, long time. Uh, but then, yeah, it would have happened without a doubt. Exactly. You know? And for you, that's a long time ago, right? Oh, gotcha. But for the women that, for the women that were 19 and had that happen to them, they get introduced to the fact that society is not a safe place for them and they carry that with them through life. So, for example, all the way through lockdown, I really enjoyed going out for long walks at night, all around Ken the Hilton, all around uh, the back of the law. I walk in the countryside in the dark and I just whistle away, hear a podcast on, like that excellent Dundee uh, podcast, all about Dundee United, the Couriers Talking Football podcast. <laughs> and I would never feel at risk and statistically I'm hey. no at risk. Women at any age have been introduced to the fact they're no safe and they can't. Mm. They're, 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 they have less freedom than we have because of their gender. Mm. And we as 19-year-olds, definitely, like I realised I misbehaved and I didn't realise that two years later. And I've realised I've ruined, I've never, I've never gone miles over the score, but I'm talking about just ruining women's evenings. And the thing is, just about every man at 19 does that, which means just about every woman at 19 has the, has that has that inculcated in them that they're no safe. Yeah. And then the men that, like you and I, corrected our behaviour, sure, or at least want to correct our behaviour and stay conscious of it, especially now. The men that want to go on and be predators start at 19 and do what we did, and then they keep getting more and more extreme till they go out and rape somebody, kill somebody, and it all starts from there. And we need to just put, say, right, we're gonna we're gonna turn ourselves against this now. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, no, it was it was quite. You know, it was a uh, strong is not the right word, but it was quite when when I saw it on social media, it, it was quite you know, I'm not sure of the word. I nearly said appealing there, but that's that's also not wrong. But that's also not right. It should be said. But is this a campaign that's that's going to move? Is it just to make people aware? Is there a place people can get info? What's the so? I'd say the first thing today is just to like raise awareness because, like you say. I wasn't that aware of it. Yeah. You weren't that aware of it. The term male sexual entitlement wasn't a part of my vocabulary until very recently. Mm. It's about that thing of women are on side with this already, right? Obviously. All we need to do is get all the sound men on side and suddenly that's 80% of society is actively anti-sexist in the way that most of us are actively anti-racist now. Racists still exist, but they can they're in the minority and they can that they will get trouble if they try and pull out a shit at Tanadice or in the pub, it's no longer appropriate. 
sexists need to feel exactly the same. People that are predatory towards women need to feel exactly the same. They need to be the ones feeling unsafe. And it's folk like me and you that can do that because we are just like your average Joes. We're just, we're just normal guys. We're not good. We're not bad. We're just normal guys. And if we turn against it and become actively anti that, then we can make the big difference. Yeah, without a doubt. It's, uh, yeah, it's on your social medias and stuff. Like People have probably seen the video because it's had thousands of people have seen it now. Over 100,000 views. Which is, incre- yeah. which, which is incredible. For, uh-huh. you know, for, That's good, like. You know, for, to go out and then 100,000 people see it. It's, it's exactly. an amazing. It's something you certainly do about. Right, before we finish off, mm-hmm. obviously, um, I mentioned it right at the top, uh, the first guest that I had on was a Dundee fan, pal of mine, Billy. <laughs> Poor old um, Billy. Right before the, uh, it was before the Derby as well. Uh-huh. Uh, which How did that go? I mean, well, we went good for two in this room. <laughs> um, but you are, uh, you're, you're, you're back being a fan this mm. year. You're back mm. in the stands, aren't you? Back in the stands, man, and tell you what, I'm absolutely loving it. <laughs> so it's, it's a wee bit annoying because one of the reasons I've, I moved back to Dundee, um, I was living in Amsterdam. And I thought I'd, I'd like to move back to Dundee because I want to get a season ticket again and just go to every game and just bloody well enjoy it. Yeah. Like, cause I, I like, I've always loved you. I've, I've loved United for a number of years. Like, United were my team when I was wee, but there was never any question of going to football matches. Like mm. I say, it's all about the heavy metal. Yeah. A gig at the Westie was three quid. Pints were two quid. And then my pals were saying, do you all come to Tanadice? It was like 17 quid. I was like, what am I getting 17 quid for? And... Nah, 17 quid for 90 minutes or 17 quid is my hail weekend getting blurred <laughs> and my taxi home, like, no danger. True. But so uh, ever since I, you know, like like I said, when I turned my life onto the normal tracks and was able to afford it, I started going to Tannadice really regularly, a good group of pals, loved it. Mm. And I thought I'd like to move hit with Dundee to see uh, the games week in, week out. And like you can, my flat's right by Tannadice. Um, and then of course COVID kicked off. And so instead, I got offered the chance to work in DUTV and attend all the games and work alongside your cell in the empty stadium. And to be honest, man, I was really glad of it. I was really, really glad of it during a long, bleak lockdown to get out and see the games and that. But to be back in the stands this season, like to be back for the Rangers game, where, what, 4,600? I think Something like that, yeah. Whatever the capacity was. And we were all mixed up. We weren't allowed to sit in yeah. the season ticket. So I was just sat next to like three random guys. It was great. And it was like, all right, guys, like, we were all strangers to each other and we're all, like, delighted. And like, all right, guys, how's it going? It was sunny. Like, we played really well. Like, obviously we won and that's amazing. But yeah. we also just played well. It was fun. It was exciting. We were loving it. And, and it, man, it just felt so good. Where were you sitting? It, it was actually Dode Fox Upper and I was sort of along towards the shed end. Oh, nice seats. Nice Love, view honestly, there. lovely seats. I've often, like, I've tried to convince my pals to move up there. Okay. Um, but nobody's willing to fork out. Yeah, <laughs> well, there is that, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yet, to me, it matters so much. I've said all the way through this podcast, belonging to community, because I think it's because I'm fairly village, I'm fairly quite yeah. a tight-knit family in that. I want to belong to things. And because of my stupid accent, and because I travelled so much, I felt like an outsider for many, many years. Like, I was away for seven years. I felt like a real outsider all the places I was. I want to feel like I belong. I can't belong to Dundee because I'm no Dundonian, right? Mm-hmm. I'm Fay Angus. I can't go back to Newbiggin because what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do in Newbiggin, Ronnie? Like, pure, like, pick strawberries? I don't know. None. Nothing. So I can't be, I can't belong to a place anymore. That's the nature of um, the globalised world. But I can belong to a support. I can belong to, I can be an Arab, you know? And I want that and I love it and I really... I value that so much. And as much as I love DUTV, and I did really enjoy it, and I valued my time so much, mm. anybody would have been happy with that. Ken, 
uh, my relationship with United will last 40, 50, 60 year. DUTV will be one tiny part of that story. Yeah. Um, I'm ex- as excited to meet my pal Greg, get a, a slate of tenants, get on the supporters bus doing to Livingston in the morning, <laughs> as I ever was to go and meet the, the class act, the Dublin Dreamboat himself, Mr. Sean Dillon. <laughs> like, it's all part of one love affair that yeah. I hope will just carry me through. Yeah. He's, he's, he's still speaking on another one. I mean, we on him for about four hours, but... He's, uh, he's, what a guy. He's, uh, yeah, he, he is that indeed. Um, but obviously, let's say last season when we were watching games, you know, we were saying before, like, there was nobody there and whatever, but, you know, you're in your season ticket seat. You're where you should be as well. And how is how has it felt going for the sort of Rangers game to what it's like now? You're now in your seat and there's more people in. And is it feeling, dare I say, like normal like it used to be no it's not feeling like it used to be because you used to lose to Morton all the True. time <laughs> <laughs> it used to be shite like pre-Covid it was like obviously the championship promotion season was good fun I yes. really enjoyed that mm-hmm. um, but even then we still had some honkers yeah um, it's true like we still like I mind uh, me and Paul Greg Rep Greg Greg's got a lot of mentions this episode this podcast but uh, I still mind us kind of being a bit pissed off drawing one all way Morton mm-hmm. we got tickets for the Eddie Thompson for the game just to like because it's bouncing in there and it was just flat as a pancake and I was like God's sake get us out of this jobby league <laughs> and uh, yeah there was a bit so um, it's not like back to normal at all it feels so fresh Yeah, it feels so good it feels like there's like the doldrums days when we were like the Thompson out stuff, which is fair and like I'm all for that, but the hostility, the, because I was Biden the Aberdeen coming all the way down, getting pumped off some part-time team, then hitting the train all the way back up, having spent all my spending money for the week on a ticket and a train ticket. You're just thinking, God almighty, this is hard work. Oh, um, so it's not, it's nothing like the old days. It just feels, it's back to like 2013-14 when you're skipping up to Tannadice. I still didn't turn up expecting a win ever because uh, we're no we're no world beers. But, but that's also because what you've watched before. Probably I. but it's just like we're just going there and we're enjoying ourselves. Mm. Folk are happy, folk are enjoying a blether. There's like, you're seeing all the old faces again that you haven't seen for a long time. And yeah, I feel like a real, um, like, I feel like one of the great avenues of pleasure in my life is back and it's mainlining and it's, it feels great. Yeah, listen, we, we've said a lot of time, uh, that podcast is a lot easier to do when you're winning, mm. but it's actually just easier to do when you're playing well or trying to play really well. Oh, uh, and I think, you know, we've said a lot, a lot that last season was a bit of a chore at times, but you're right, even the season before, there was the odd game that were a chore and the seasons before that were hilariously a chore oh. and stuff. But uh, obviously with the, the summer, you get your season ticket, you're waiting, you still kind of get back right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get into Rangers, and then we've had a, a, a couple of wins uh, so far. How relaxed are you going ahead for the for the rest of the season? Are you quite chilled, quite enjoying yourself? Quite. I've got mixed emotions about it because I'm naturally a very nervous supporter. So like whenever I turn up the games... I like, was oh, so about to ask, what are you like at games? But yeah, yeah, I'm a total nervous Nelly. Like, okay. during, like you'll mind, during, I got in, actually in trouble during the COVID season, <laughs> the first couple of games, because I forgot. Well, I didn't forget. Like, I just get really nervous yeah. and I get a bit uptight. And so I was screaming at the players. But I was forgetting, like, they could hear you. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, Robson, fucking get back! 
But I'm the only voice in the stadium and Abdi can hear yeah. me. And I'm not sure who it was, if it was like Tony Ashgar or whatever. Somebody sent a message along like, Ali, mate, you're going to have to shut your puffs. I'm doing. Yeah, like I was coming up on like, uh, what was telly, was it? There was a team we were playing, like, I think it was Kilmarnock TV, said, Ali, mate, you're like, they came across like, you're swearing all over our commentary. Because I was sitting there in my match reports, but I was like kicking the seats, I was screaming, I was pointing, just like I usually did. Yeah. Um, but I would say that, yeah, so we're off to Livy them on. I didn't still, um, I didn't go there and expect anything. Um, but it's that thing of, because I didn't think we are going to get relegated this season because we started so well, I feel a bit more relaxed because that's what we've got to avoid. You didn't want relegation, you didn't want relegation playoffs. But now there is that Tunnock's Caramel Wafer Europa Conference Jobby Cup that might just get us a slot in Europe if we finish fifth. I'm desperate for it, Ronnie. <laughs> I am next, what is it, next, like, May the 30th or whenever that competition starts. Oh, it's early. Like. Uh, it's early. I want us to be on the flight to Kaunas in Lithuania or I want us to be off to, you know, the Arctic Circle in Northern Finland. I want to go and play Rops Rovaniemi or whatever. I want to go, I want to see United away in Europe and I want to see like 500 Arabs travelling and having fun. Yeah. Like, because it brings so much joy to people. And I want that joy to continue. And I think getting us in a fifth place in Europe would give us the bragging rights that we've needed for the last seven years. Yeah. It'd, give, it'd help return our status in the game, which I think has been lacking because we've been so genuinely rubbish. It'd give us the status in the game. It'd return us to where we should be. We'll attract the better players if we're in that. And I think it'd just let us have a bit of a swagger. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous, but I'm optimistic. And uh, for the season ahead, well, I mentioned this to Billy. Mm -hmm. He's obviously Dundee born and bred. He's got the families that are mixed, right. you know, United, Dundee. What is it like for you and your Derby experience and Dundee fan pals, if you have any? Uh-huh, yeah, what, yeah. What so one of my like? good pals for the village, Craig, okay. is Dundee FC's official piper. Brilliant. So he's got the full kit, like, uh, Get like he's got the full kilt, which is all, um, all the Dundee tart and all that kind of stuff. And he's... Um, like sort of playing before matches and like he's brought the, the pipe band in for the big games. I think their big games are what against Alawa usually or Probably. back ends. Um, but so yeah, I've got, and uh, my, actually a boy at my gym who's a, who's a good pal is a, a, a big entity, but actually played for uh, United all the way through the youth system. Oh, nice one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the derby for me is such a joy though. Like, but if you're saying you're nervous normally, what are you like on a day like that? It's the thing... Like, or what were you like this time? Honestly, I was feeling pretty good. Uh, I was feeling pretty good. It was my girlfriend's first ever uh, match at Hanadice, ah, first right. ever United game. Uh, I was in the hospitality with my uh, my boss. He's also like quite pally. Um, he's my boss at the Scottish Poetry Library. And he's an old D. And he hadn't ah, been well. in the game in years. And I was like, here, man. He was actually, he was actually fed just near the Cleppy Road. And I was like, here, man, I'll get us... The three of us got hospitality... My girlfriend, she's fairly, she's never seen anything like it. 10.30 in the morning, we wrote neck and Prosecco. My boss realised that she wasn't the order enough bevy, so she, he was pretending to order for her and himself. Aye, six rum and coke stags, so that's for the two of us. All getting absolutely hoolit, like early doors. And she was like, I can't believe how shit the football is because Abdi just kicking each other in the thighs and like pure battering each other. Like Callum Butcher's like, what is that? What is going on here? But she couldn't, she said, she's a, she grew up a Fiorentina supporter. Her whole family are season ticket holders there. She says she's never seen passion like that. She's never seen a stadium bouncing like that. It was just so good. Like that's what football's all about. It's what Dundee's all about. Like get... What was it, 13, 14,000 we got in with the COVID restrictions? 
It was a lot. It yeah. was a lot. And the place was bouncing. Same and man. We, they were decent. They were a good team. Yeah. And we beat them and it felt great. And that's what it's all about. The derbies for me are one-off games and you treat them like the carnival they are. It's nothing about the three points. It's nothing about the league positions. It's nothing about Flaz playing better or anything like that. You just want to go. You want it to be bouncing and you want to win. And that's exactly what happened. And I just... I was too leathered to be nervous, is the yeah. truth. <laughs> um, two United questions. Please. Favourite away day? Oh, um, favourite like away experience ever was certainly... Uh, I found the tickets for it the day, actually. I was going through my memory box. and um, Why is there a picture of Paul McNingle on it? That's weird. <laughs> Some faces you never want to forget, mm. no matter how bad the dementia nope. gets. Eh? And... I I found the tickets for uh, the 2014 game away at Ibrox. Okay. And it was with two of my best pals, uh, Graham, who I still go to the games with now, uh, and Stephen, who's a great old friend of mine who eventually married an American and has disappeared off to Los Angeles. And we still keep in touch. But that day, out in the sun, at Ibrox, when we're playing the, the greatest football, when we're up against it, when we're day in the you're not Rangers anymore chant for about 100 solid minutes, it was everything that football should be. It's mm. a class performance. It's a huge travel and support. It's incredible camaraderie. It's that little frisson of danger because there's folk want to really pagger us outside is that, that is that also your favourite game then? Would you... Is that probably up there a favourite game? I would say... I would say probably no my favourite ever game because I think we've... I think I've enjoyed games there because that was so much about the atmosphere and so much about the occasion. Okay. I don't right. remember much, watching much of the game. I didn't remember much actually happening. Um, in terms of games, I've absolutely loved. Honestly, see that Easter Road, the Hebs 3-0. Like, see playing Hebs off the park in the rain turf. Yeah, pretty special. Pretty special. I think we've had some incredible games, like, in the cup runs and stuff. What would be the best... Like the game where I've just appreciated our play. I mean, that wasn't even the second quarter. That was just thrown in because you were speaking very passionately about that away day and it was very good. Mm. So I think in terms of actual football played, you'd be hard-pressed to beat um, the days when we had Fouyou in the centre of defence, uh, big sexy Sean Dillon, and you had, you know, that like the exciting midfield where you had like Rankin and Peyton <laughs> sitting and then Armstrong and GMS and Shifty. You'd be really hard-pressed to look beyond that as a time when you could really enjoy your football. Mm. But I would say we're pretty close to that. Um, the actual second question I was going right. to ask is, in your following United serious time, mm -hmm. favourite player? And you cannot pick Sean Dillon. Well, if I can't pick Sean <laughs> Dillon... Um, so that's it. Because I supported us when we were also very, very terrible, you kind of had to find players you loved. So I... I had to love Simon Murray. Okay. And like you'd force yourself to. You had to you had to make yourself convinced that um you're like say Paul McMullen was a world beater. Just just to get yourself up for the game on a mm. Saturday. But honestly say, my favourite player, if you'd asked me this a year ago, would have been Stuart Armstrong, because of what you want is a player facing goal yeah. with the ball at his feet breaking lines. I don't think there's any more exciting than a boy that can carry 18, 20 yards. Mm get past a couple and it just like unlocks the opportunities and your heart goes and you're right well anything can happen now so I think Stuart Armstrong probably still Stuart Armstrong yeah. narrowly but there's a couple of players in the current team that I'm very very ready to completely fall in love with Yeah, I think um, Imi Niskanen has got 
uh, like Ali Heather's new sweetheart written okay. all over nice. him. Because he does what I want. He sprints so hard and fast, but he's also talented. And he's such, he's he got such it. a team And ethic. he loves it. He loves it. And that's, he's got everything I want in a player. So I'm so ready for me to get Neskin in seven on the back of next season's trip and that kind of stuff. Incredible. He's not there yet, but I'm ready for it. Yeah, he's getting there. Uh, final question, what's next for Ali Heather? Well, what's next for Ali Heather? So I'm going through this period of change where I came into COVID in my 20s and I'm now in my 30s as COVID is, I'm not saying it's easing because I think we're, we're not at the woods yet, but I'm now having to recalibrate what my life's about. And I'm trying to think more professionally. I've always just done whatever, like I've had a million different jobs, a million different careers. I've had a million different partners. I've had like, a con- like I've lived in a million different cities. I've lived all over the world, you know. And I'm starting to think maybe in my 30s, I should try and find joy in different things and try and find more meaning in career. So I'm really focusing on taking my communications and my, my content production into ways that'll actually earn me some goddamn cash money and start to live a like a mere challenging professional life and try and find meaning and identity through that. So I want to keep my United season ticket, keep my friends and family very close and value love as a guiding principle in everything I do next, but really push ahead with a kind of a communications career that can maybe get me a rented flat in a scheme and get me into uh, a purchased flat in a scheme. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about it and leave a review or a rating. If you didn't, then let's never speak of it again. These are the days.